ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our awesome guest is Christina Nguyen-White, VP of Design at Loom, and we're going to talk about the concept of user respect today. This episode is brought to you by Refiner. Capture actionable product and user feedback with in-product microsurveys. Measure NPS, continuously research users, assess product market fit, and more. With Refiner, run any type of survey and precisely target the right users at the right time. To get our in-product survey best practices, download our free microsurvey database at refiner.io slash database. Hi, Christina. Hi, Jane. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. We're absolutely thrilled. Before we dive into the story of, of Loom itself, can you tell us about yourself and what your background story is, where you come from? Yeah, absolutely. My origins really root down from a place of industrial design. It's where I studied and very much of the passion and I think the mission to make life easier for people and for humans through everyday products. That really quickly evolved into the digital space where I dove into UX design and first started at a consulting firm designing for B2B enterprise products and really got excited about how just the world of, I think, UX just lowered the barrier for users to really approach digital in a way to make their lives easier, less as a technology they have to adopt. So that quickly evolved into a lot of digital and creative agencies that I led creative efforts for, especially in retail and e-commerce, and then went to a brand agency where I was able to combine the storytelling efforts with a lot of the digital product design efforts. My most recent experience was at uh, Google prior to Loom, where I was designing for Google Sheets and a little bit of docs and slides within the Google Workspace suite. And now here at Loom, carrying the the world of collaborative productivity in the video space. So Loom has been out there since uh, 2016. It's 180 people. And you've been leading their design team for a year and a half. How is it inside? What are your challenges? What are your wins? How do you feel inside the team at Loom? Yeah, it's been a fantastic journey since I joined. It's also been a lot of change, I think, in the macroeconomic environment that has, you know, really shown how resilient and change forward our team can be. I think we're generally very optimistic in our mission and how do we kind of change the way users behave in using video at work at Loom and also just very much real and human in how we work together. And so, you know, kind of We're very much all hands on deck together, kind of a no territorial kind of vibe, no ego vibe, and really, you know, working towards this mission as we're also changing the way we work with the environment that we're in. So this is intended to be a controversial question. Uh, Video kind of divides people in, in camps pretty strongly, and those are people who are loving video for work and those who aren't. And to be honest, I'm in the second camp. Uh, What about yourself personally? And do you feel like everybody's Loom is magically a power user or like how do you bridge the gap and are you personally a power user yourself? Yeah. So if you were to ask majority of Loomates and my fellow colleagues, if we were all video super users before we joined Loom, I would say majority of us were not. We were 
very much in a space where most of us are in in the workplace when it comes to text-based communication, email, Slack, text, right? Collaborative documentations. And if it wasn't text-based, we were hopping into live meetings to have those more human-to-human conversations. And what we have learned and what I, I basically had, we call it the aha moment when you get your first loom, whether it's, you know, for me, it was a recruitment loom, right? Where a recruiter was basically trying to introduce me to this role. And I was very much like, oh my gosh, this is a much more empathetic and more authentic way to reach out to someone you don't know. And from then on, right, the use cases on how we use Loom just spanned in such a limitless way. But I'm not going to lie that it does take a, you know, kind of a comfort, you know, getting to a comfort level of being comfortable and confident in video for us to get there. And that's exactly our mission, right? We know that the power of video unlocks so many things on working more efficiently and effectively. It replaces meetings. It really shortcuts times that you're using to like spend you know, minutes, sometimes hours writing emails. And, but also we know that it's a behavior change. We absolutely recognize that it is a different way of working and that's the exciting opportunity in front of us and exactly what our design team does and how we approach, you know, everything that we do with that mission. How large is the design team at Loom these days? Yeah, so we are a size of 14. And then in addition to a few wonderful freelancers that we have on the team that puts us at about 20 folks, we are comprised of product design, user experience researchers, and brand designers. And it's just a, yeah, a really stellar crew. Where do you feel the majority of efforts fall like in between those parts of the team that you mentioned? Yes, I think where we have evolved When I first joined the team, we were very much of a product design centric team. We had at the time a separate brand team that was really tasked with telling the story of Loom and the mission of Loom. As we have evolved, a few things changed. One is we brought in uh, user research as a discipline and scaled that discipline. We had one researcher at the time that I joined and scaled the team. And that has anchored us not only in why we choose to, to make the design decisions we do, but our user research team also informs our product roadmap, also partners with our sales and marketing teams on what are the user problems and the user pain points that people feel and how can Loom overcome that. And why user research is so particularly important in this type of behavior changing product is because we are unprecedented. Like <laughs> video at work is, is not something that we are evolving to make better, we're truly introducing it to the workplace. And so that allows us to anchor our efforts towards what really matters and what users actually care about through our research team and by way through as well our data team. Another area that evolved as I have joined the Loom team is our brand storytelling is not just how we market outside to prospective customers, right? Our brand and our storytelling is truly required end to end when users are using the product, when they're troubleshooting with the product. There's so much about the, if you will, onboarding that people need to continually learn and our users need to continually be reminded of the value of Loom in order to make it more sticky. And so thus the brand team has really evolved into being closer and tighter knit with our product design team. And so you find that our voice and tone is much more seamless kind of in and out of product. Our visual look and feel of how we communicate 
and educate how users use these features and get them excited about what to use them for. And there's so much around explaining that we have to do, but we do it in a way that it is synonymous with our brand ethos and being a more, what we call like a guided mentor or a mellow mentor, right? We're not over the head. You have to use video. We're very much not, you know, prescriptive on how to use video, but we definitely want to be there for our user to kind of guide them through the process. This concept of user respect, it's more of your personal philosophy to start with, but you use it at Loom a lot. Where does this originate from? Did you coin it during your Google times, agency times? Like, how does it follow you throughout the years? Yeah, it's a great question on the origins of it. And I think by nature of being a designer of digital products requires you to, from the beginning, have almost be very diligent and a little bit uh, precious about not letting the technology take over the user, right? At the end of the day, humans are humans and we happen to use technical devices. We happen to use a lot of things with screens, but, and we could talk about this later when it comes to AI, but humans will not be replaced, right? We may be amplified or we may be assisted by digital. And so it really originated back actually in my agency days where I worked a lot in retail spaces and, you know, how do we bring a digital shopping into the store? And so much of our clients were very much just about, let's just put all of these screens everywhere and people are just going to shop online and they're going to buy all this product and we're going to make so much money. And ultimately what happened is we put screens everywhere and it didn't stick. One, because it wasn't natural to the in-store experience. Like I'm there to actually immerse myself in the vibes of the store, immerse myself in the brand. I'm not there to be on my computer when I could have done that at home. And what I quickly learned with my design and strategy teams was very much of how can almost digital be an invisible part of the experience where it may help a store associate, right? To be able to shop for a more personalized product for the customer, but that human to human relationship is still first and foremost. And so that's where a lot of the ethos of user respect comes into play. And I almost evolve it over time of human respect and respecting the human in a world of a very digitally powered and continues to be powered, I think, world that we we are growing into. And it just, it's finding ourselves in, in this like kind of boundaries between the digital and the human worlds. Where is the nuance between the classic empathy idea and uh, user respect? Is there any like subtle difference or do you feel they're kind of synonymous? That's a very good question. I would say in terms of the design perspective of how you apply user respect, it's very synonymous. Being empathetic with the user, understanding where their true emotional pain points are, for example, I'm really scared to be on video, is extremely important in how you define and design your experience in order to lower that fear, right? I think they become user empathy and user respect are come at a balance too when we also need to drive a business. And I think that that's where kind of product and design carry such a complement to each other where how do we take empathy, but also balance it? What is the business opportunity that we need to be in? And that's where products are sticky, right? When they're able to do both and they're able to be able to say, you know, by leading a way of let's solve this user pain point. While it is a business opportunity for us to have more users recording on Loom, 
then you're able to really deliver a more delightful and iconic experience and product because of that. So when we talk about user respect, we want uh, to behave in a way that's most gentle and empathetic to the user. But the place where they need to be is very often uncomfortable and maybe not even desirable just yet, even though it does take them to their business result and then respectively your business to your business result. How do we deal with that? Yeah. So I frame that from a point of view of inputs and outputs, right? Input is what our users are telling us through customer support feedback, through how they're talking about us on Twitter, through our user research, through the data and how they're using our product. And that is helpful for us if we take all of those inputs and as a design, a product and engineering team, right? An overall product team, how we take that and interpret it to then translate and be very opinionated about what that experience should be. And so I think about an example of, you know, we have a clear, you know, I think one of our top user kind of hurdles is that users find themselves re-recording often, right? They, they give themselves like, you know, 10 plus takes to record that perfect loom video and to get it just right, right? And that's where we say, okay, well, one, it should feel more casual and more approachable than the most high production video. Two, right, how do we give the user tools to make them feel like they don't have to get it perfect the first time? And so that's where we take, that's an input of the pain point. The output in this case was how to, delivering speaker notes, for example, that are invisible to the actual screen. So I'm able to kind of have my own, you know, notes to myself that make me comfortable, that allow me to like really deliver the narrative that I want to deliver without having to feel like I have to have it memorized, right? Another kind of opinion of where we are very much driving the user to is we have a pause button. And so how do we promote more of that pause button so people can take those human breaks, take those breaks to actually like, you know, take a breather or recover from a potential curse word, whatever it needs. And we're also like discussing about the intent journey of recording of how do you even make editing easier to cut those bloopers out. And so all to say is that, you know, when it comes to user empathy is that we use it as our baseline to understand what we need to overcome, but the solution is not always the solution that a user may expect, right? And that's exactly kind of where, you know, I think all of us as design teams, you know, in all of our products kind of take that opinionated stance and just trying out what we think is what's best solution for that pain point. Let's explore some specific case studies that you're happily, thankfully willing to share. And one of them is the redesign of your desktop recorder that took the principles of user respect and applied it using research and everything. Could you tell us more about this project? Yes, absolutely. So Coming this summer, you'll see a more like redesigned suite of all of our recorder tools. So we have redesigned our Chrome extension app um, this past spring. And this summer, you'll see a redesigned recorder app of our desktop app. And so one, I think as designers, you start with one generation of a product. And at some point, you're going to want to redesign it because you just know you need to modernize it. So I think there were a lot of learnings on 
really being able to, I think, internally justify why a redesign was appropriate for here, why was it appropriate now. And I think externally, we were hearing so much around the barriers to entry, the barriers to recording were very much around feeling comfortable in the environment that I was in, feeling confident that I don't have a lot of background noises. Even Jane, you and me, we're like doing a lot of tech setup, even just to get this podcast started. And so like, how do we even help to shortcut that through redesigning our settings and redesigning like default settings of making sure that your background noise is turned off? And so what we learned was essentially it wasn't just a redesign to be able to reskin, if you will, our recorder to have it be more modern and be more, you know, beautiful and aesthetically pleasing. It was very much around the restructuring and simplifying of our recorder. So that way it was more approachable. That way I did feel more confident going in. And that way I did really feel like I didn't have to record 20 times, right, to get that perfect recording. And so that's exactly what we ventured into, starting with first our research and our data to inform that what do we need to respect, right? What do we need to assure the user going in into a video recording that we need to keep? And what can we introduce that further enhances that level of confidence? Give us specific ideas how you even gather all the data about people using your recorder. It's not super straightforward. Like, how do you know what they're doing, how they're feeling during that? Like, do you just gather sentiments and support inbox or do you do special like sessions where people are sitting down and you record their experience? Yeah. So I think it was a first a triangulation of what we were hearing at different moments in the journey. And so we would get feedback at, let's say, the end of a recording journey that was, you know, I have a very hard time editing my loom to cut out those bloopers. And then as we pulled it back and we started to look at the data of where people were, if you will, like dropping or where they were hitting re-record, it was very much around kind of that first minute or 30 seconds. <laughs> and so looking at usage data to say, where are our users actually having those biggest pain points? To, and it was a, a lot of it was getting started well before they hit the record button when they were preparing for their loom. They were setting up their screen. They were setting up their mic. They were ensuring that their audio was very audible. And so that really informed our first step was truly to have a clear end-to-end journey of pre, during, and post-recording, and then mapping the pain points and the data usage across each of those moments in the journey to understand where it was most painful. And so then what we took a stance was, we said, let's tackle that pre-recording moment first, which is the redesign of our recorder app to ensure that the moment that they go in, they feel comfortable going in. And then, you know, the future of our roadmap kind of carries into the rest of the journey. But that was really what informed us of where to begin, because you can easily start by trying to tackle all of those moments at the same time. But we knew that that pre-recording moment was such a prevalent kind of, if you will, like moment to feel like assured going in into the entire journey that just kind of essentially the more that users were set up, the less recordings that we saw later down the road. And so we were able to experiment with a lot of those kind of usage stats in order to gather where we started with what we redesigned and what we re-architected within that menu. What are some of those new solutions and improvements that you've made based on the research? Yeah. So one, I think, was the respect for the content, right? So a lot of Loom is 
showing your human expression as a speaker, but you still are, you know, kind of the supplement to the content that you are walking through in the background, whether it is a presentation deck, whether it's a design file that you're walking through, um, whether it's a very complex spreadsheet. And so what we understood was that, you know, kind of respecting the content was very important to the user that their overall visual stage, if you will, was set up correctly. And what we dove into as an example of a feature that is new to this redesign is invisible controls. In our design, in our recorder right now, all of your controls of your recorder are visible to, to the actual video. And so by hiding the controls, and then therefore we were able with that technology to be able to hide the controls, we were able to therefore hide speaker notes. And so that's why we introduced then speaker notes that were also invisible. So imagine you essentially have a creator stage, right? And then you have the stage that everyone else is seeing. And that was something that we introduced as a way to, again, provide that like confidence to the user that they weren't revealing more than they wanted to and that their presentation layer was kept intact and, and respected. How did you balance the legacy of a well-known, respected tool that people rely on and making changes to it and therefore like affecting people's workflows so dramatically? Like how do you balance change and keeping the legacy? Yeah. So one, the areas that we kept precious were still front and center, right? So we wanted to ensure that what the users cared about, which was what are they sharing? Where is their video like being you know, recorded and what is the audio? We're very much front and center, but all of the other options that were part of the recorder that we were asking the user to define either took a few more steps than it did or just created more noise. I think from the very beginnings of our origin story of our founders, Joe and Vinay, and what made our initial recording experience successful was they heard time and time again, simplify, simplify, simplify. How do we make it, if you will, like three steps and you're ready to go? And that's essentially the inherent, like, if you will, principles that we kept intact. And so how do we build, if you will, features within this very limited space? It's a recorder modal, right? It only has, it takes up so much and you also only want to make so many decisions. And so we took the data of what were the most prevalently used features. And we said, these are the things that we need to keep precious, right? And then the areas that we knew we could optimize, we took into the subjective and the qualitative feedback around, you know, my audio isn't working and I get so frustrated when I can't tell that it's not working. Well, now we have a clear on indicator and our audio wavelength, which was there before, but in a much more hidden way, is much more clear in the way we displayed it within the menu itself. And then how do you gauge that difference that it made in the user experience? Do you have any qualitative ways of doing that? Yes. So one qualitative ways is absolutely where we usability tested this time and time again. We also experimented with having staged releases to smaller cohorts, right? So to alpha and beta users and really taking in just observational data. So our qualitative feedback came in through surveys that we launched in product, but it also really came through quantitative data as well. And one learning that we had during some of those iterations was our first time user experience to welcome users to the new redesign wasn't great, as in it was absent. And we in intentionally took that stance up front and we made that decision to say, you know, we, this should feel as seamless of a redesign as possible. It should feel just like your experience before. But no matter what, users notice change. 
And we learned through lots of complaints, I think, within the, the beta launch around what is going on, help me orient how to use this and help me orient what I need to do here. And with that, very much, we kind of folded in that brand ethos that I was talking about earlier of guiding and mentoring the user through this recording flow. And that quickly kind of like uptick the number of downloads and uptick the number of recordings that we had with that feedback. Whenever we talk about redesigns, I remember Evernote's redesign from like 10 years ago when they completely overhauled their experience and they have a giant user base and the the material, the feedback they collected, it was just like <laughs> piles and piles of negative feedback was like a pretty uh, textbook story, right? In the product world. Yeah, it was very much of a lesson learned and, you know, we were grateful to be able to recover from it and hearing opposite positive feedback now. <laughs> How do you design? Well, this is a bit of a sidetrack question, but you know that your current redesign is going to last for a few years because you can't afford redesign the key like elements every year or so. How do you make sure it lasts? Like there are design trends, you want to stay trendy, but you also want to be a bit timeless there. Yeah, I think that there is, in terms of being timeless, it's being majority confident in your information architecture, in the structural makeup of your experience, it's not going to be 100%, right? We can't predict the future, but it is something that, you know, we as a design team really push ourselves to pressure test on, does this scale? If I were to add five or 10 random features, whatever they would be, would this overall structurally scale? And by way of saying, not to just add stuff onto it and tack it on. But by say, way of saying, does those inherent pieces of those three bits that I mentioned earlier that come front and center, do those continue to be front and center? And do we have other ways to extend our offering in other ways, whether it's secondary menus, whether it's hover states, whether it's different ways that we have like maybe a set, uh, like a sub step that you kind of fork into, but structurally, do you feel confident this can scale? And then I think the visual aesthetics are very much around, there's modern trends of what's going to be trendy, whether it's, you know, kind of flat buttons and, you know, rounded buttons in visual style or more dimensional buttons, right? That kind of like, that does come and go through kind of the waves of the generations of our products. But I think what is inherently important when it comes to visual design is very much, does it elude and does it make the design more affordable? as to, I know what this button does. I know what, that this is hoverable. I understand and I intuitively understand as a user that you know I can actually go into a secondary settings menu here. And those little bits is really what is more timeless than you know, I think the more aesthetic aspects that are very key to that affordability, but do evolve you know, kind of in tweaks over time. One of my favorite design concepts is the uh, Chesterton fence, I think. It's a story where there was a fence uh, in the middle of the road and the new governor was like, why is it in the middle of the road? And they removed it and suddenly things got really bad. Uh, so when you joined the team like a year and a half ago, were there any like hot decisions that you were able to make immediately or was it more about like absorbing for the first like year, you know? I think there were a few hot decisions. <laughs> <laughs> hot decision, the hard decisions. I'm pretty like it wasn't really clear. <laughs> I can think of a few. 
I think there's one overall, I wouldn't say hot, a little spicy in terms of how we were building our design system. And there was a lot of, I think, basically we had our design system kind of dedicated to an engineer and that engineer was required to essentially scale that system and that education to our broader engineering group. And, you know, by way of, you know, I think it was, uh, that engineer went and designed, went to start and design uh, a system for a wonderful, like early stage product. And so therefore we were, you know, I was like, how do we continue forward? Do we have a continued dedicated design system owner? Right. Or do we scale this to a shared ownership model where, because I think that was the barrier to really some of the polish, I think that we weren't seeing consistently across our app. And so by way of forming a community, which we call like really our front end community and it's passionate engineers and designers that are all inherently making incremental improvements to our not only design system, but our built components of that system has unlocked a lot, one, more velocity for our team. And then two, I think it unlocks a more consistent quality of our experience. We have a ways to go. But I do think that that was a bit of a model change that we had operated in the past. And I also am grateful for almost the constraint that we have, I think, within our macro economy, right? And it's like, how do we make the most of the team that we have in order to still achieve the quality we want and exceed the quality that we want? And so I think that has also just built a sense of ownership into the team, um, a sense of passion and camaraderie that we didn't have before when it was made by a single owner, if that makes sense. I think a second example, which is a bit... (laughs) different in a totally different category was how do we continue to be informed by what our users are saying? How do we continue to be user obsessed and customer obsessed? And that is by way of directly absorbing and scaling our user research capabilities and our discipline and that culture that we had had within Loom. And that has made our decision-making faster. It is also made us very more direct around saying like, you know, this is what research is telling us. This is what data is telling us. But this is also our conviction of what we feel is actually going to drive our metric while still protecting the user. And it has allowed us to have more open and direct conversations versus trying to guess or assume or make hypotheses on what is or what is not happening to our end users and the way that they're using our product. In user research and the foundations you've been able to create there, Do you feel that the process matters more or do you feel the tool stack is kind of helping you along or is it a combination? What's more important? I would, I'll speak of it from a perspective of how research has influenced our broader company and our broader organization. And I actually think it's the tools and the systems allow our researchers to work more efficiently by way of scaling themselves. But I think ultimately where the discipline is most successful is having that voice within the conversations, having that voice within the stakeholder group and really going back to empathy, like directly hearing it firsthand, right? At any company that I've been in, you will have endless amount of research reports to read. You will have endless amount of material to absorb and digest. But I think when it becomes part of the conversation, to be tra- the role of our researchers in so many ways is translating the voice of our users 
in a way that is applicable, I think, to the conversation that we have at hand. And that's where I feel that it's almost neither of those. Like that's what gets us to the, to the ultimate like output, but it's more about the output and how it's applied and how it's actively, if you will, like used within our teams and our conversations. You've mentioned before that your brand design team also puts a lot of effort towards making this journey smooth for the user. You mean comforting people who are not really amazing or comfortable with with videos. Tell us more how exactly they do it. Yeah. So one is there is clearly an evolution that we've had as a company, which at first was to how do we go broad and how do we target messaging and target our marketing to a broad company, to many use cases. And what we've learned over time is that majority of our users and the way that they make decisions about how to use Loom is more bottoms up. It's very much you have a champion within a company that really sings the, the praises of Loom, starts to use it, has their teams use it, and then there's basically an organic adoption. And so what we've learned from a brand perspective of what that means is rather than talking to the masses, right, we talk explicitly to these like champion groups and champion personas that we know has very direct influence in how Loom scales within a company. So for example, engineering is a very influential voice of workflows and ways of working within a product organization. And so by targeting our messaging towards engineering use cases, such as how to make code reviews a lot easier, how to get builds out faster, how to ensure that your product you know, manager understands kind of the technical decisions you made, we gain a lot more traction in our storytelling that way and have that feed up rather than saying, Broadly, you know, Loom makes communication more efficient. And so that's been really a big turning point for us as we've learned, you know, how to really target our messaging in more of a bottoms up or more vertical manner than we have been doing in a horizontal manner. So how exactly, some examples how you've been doing it? Yeah. So one is in our paid advertising of how we essentially attribute and target specific ads and specific messaging towards these engineering use cases. We also are able to, by having those targets be more clear, we're able to attribute much more of our, of our success of what's, what's tracking, what that's driving actually to signups and that's actually converting. We're also doing that kind of end-to-end journey, right? So it's like you've got you know your paid advertising driving you to specific pages within our marketing site that are very engineering focused. And then also even during our onboarding and signup flows, where we talk specifically to engineers. By selecting that and identifying yourself as an engineer, we're able to give them use case example videos. We're able to give them more direct demo videos of how to use Loom. And so the behavior change is really kind of taken through from the very beginning that a user is exposed to Loom by understanding how it's most valuable to them. How did you learn that engineers in particular are the most promising vertical? Yeah, so our data team. Oh, is, I, that that's a pretty big surprise to me because, like, anything marketing, design, like you would think, you know, but but coming bottoms up from the engineering, that's a surprise for me. Yes, yes, and you know, and we had you know hints of it in the past, just based on who our buyers were and kind of what departments were buying us. But we really looked into our data team is profound of how they were able to triangulate 
our customer data of what was in our kind of our sales funnel to our usage data of what was in our product funnel. And we were able to actually stack rank what were those personas and landing on, on engineering as our, as our, you know, one to target first. And we'll continue to experiment with like this kind of vertical based messaging throughout as we evolve. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today. If our listeners want to dig more into like how other brands practice the same approach, are there any other companies or maybe publications that are great to explore? Yeah, absolutely. I think when it comes to brands that we're regularly inspired by, it comes down to those that have similar missions of making, I think, collaboration easier, but also changing behavior. I think Figma is one example that we continually admire. And I know, of course, as a designer, that's an obvious one, but it truly has changed the way that we design now, no longer in a vacuum, but more collaboratively. I think Grammarly is also an excellent example of a brand that we follow and a product experience that we follow that allows you to just like write better, right? And that mission sounds so simple, but in the ways that they have leveraged AI and other technologies to do that. I think there's also a lot of inspiration in consumer products when it comes to how um, users, how they attain to more like, I think personalization and inspiration, Spotify, Airbnb are great design examples that we continue to gravitate to. And then B2B products, you know, Asana, and changing the project management space, um, Notion as well. All of these different canvases of how users manage their work and really create their work in ways that are not necessarily an evolution of what was paper to digital, but in ways that we have never thought of before are areas that, that we continually gravitate to. Thank you for sharing those. Where can people go online to find yourself more, what you do and follow you? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn more prevalently, also a light presence on Twitter, um, but you can follow me on either of those of those channels. Thank you so much, Christina. We've enjoyed learning from you and good luck. Hope the uh, new version of the product turns out great this summer. Thank you so much, Jane. It was great to spend the time together. Appreciate it. <laughs>